Praise God. Praise God. Absolutely. Jesus said in Luke 10, blessed are the eyes that see what you have seen. Wherever you are, whether you're here in our worship center in West Des Moines or you're at one of our many other campuses or you're uh, worshiping with us online today, let's read this verse together. Blessed are the eyes that see what you have seen. And it's true. We are so blessed to be able to see what God provides for us to see here, right here in this church, right here in this room and in the other rooms of hope at different locations. We, we're blessed to see it. Jesus goes on to say in this verse, and blessed are your ears to hear what you get to hear. Because I tell you, people at the highest echelons of, of this world status-wise, the uh, kings and prophets and royalty, pe pe people who the world looks at and says, you've got it made. You, you've got the worldly power. You've got the, the, the power of a government on your side. You're the highest level of power in a government. You're the highest religious level. You're a prophet. You, you foretell the future. I'm telling you, Jesus says, people like that long to see what you get to see. And they long to hear what you get to hear. But they don't. They miss it. And what's the distinction? It's faith. It's following Jesus. Because you follow me, Jesus says. He's saying this to his disciples. He's not saying this to prophets. He's not saying this to, 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 to worldly powers. He's, he's saying this to the fishermen and the, and the tax collector and the, and the people who are following him. He's saying, blessed are you. Blessed are your eyes and your ears to see and hear what you get to see and hear. Because you have faith to follow. Because you follow me. All this past week, and we just wanted to give you a glimpse, just wanted to give you a taste of that today uh, here at Hope. It was Vacation Bible School, and we called it Hope Ranch, as you can tell by now. And, and we go all out, and thousands of kids show up. I don't know what the number will be by the end of this week. We've got two more sessions this week. And then we'll have this big all-campus party at Waterworks Park in Des Moines uh, called Taste of Hope. And we'll celebrate some more, and we'll have outdoor worship at 5 p.m. In, in the bandstand there, and there's going to be shade this year, so take note of that. <laughs> but we're blessed. 
I'm blessed that I get to stand here with the song leaders for all the opening and closing worship sets at VBS. I'm blessed. I don't sing. I shouldn't dance. But I do. But I do it. And the Bible says, be a fool for Christ. Unless it's all about you. Unless it's all, well, I can't go there. I can't do that. I can't surrender that to God. I get to stand here and I get to insert Bible verses. And, and I get to help the kids hopefully understand. I'm like the DJ, right? I can help them understand the song, understand what they're singing, do some teaching before, some teaching after, a little bit in between. I I get to tell them, here's how much God loves you. Here's what this song you're singing about, the, the walls in Jericho coming down. God always keeps his promises, and so we put our trust in him and how important that is to do. And I get to see this room light up. The kids in this room light up. There are 2,600 seats in this room, in case you ever wondered. And almost every one of them was full this past week at the morning session. And and those kids were just hopping. They were just hopping. They're on fire. I mean, when they come in Monday, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. It's not like, this isn't heaven yet. It's just a glimpse. It's just Iowa. But, But they come in on Monday, and they kind of stare at us like, what is going on? But I'm telling you, I would say by Friday, but actually it's by... Tuesday or Wednesday at the latest, they start lighting up. And then they aren't just doing it because it's a party. Then they're doing it because because they're coming to faith or they're growing in their faith that they already have it. At one of the sessions I asked the kids, I says, how do you know Jesus loves you? And we talked about the cross and, and how much God loves us. God loves the world so much. But after that session, this little third grade girl came up to me. She says, do you want to know how I know God loves me? It's like, well, this, this is always interesting, you know, when a child go, starts a conversation, something like that. I said, no, tell me how. She said, because every time I walk into this room, I feel it. I feel God's love. Every time I come in here, I feel and I know that God loves me in my heart. She says, I feel it right here. I feel it. Blessed are my eyes and my ears to see and hear that. To get a front row seat to watch God bring a little girl to a deeper understanding of his love. That's what I want to talk to you about today too. It's not just in West Des Moines, but it was, it was lit up in Ankeny and, and in Grimes at our campus there, up in Ames. We all had VBS this past week. Uh, this coming week, we'll do it again in West Des Moines and Ankeny and Waukee's going to do it and our Hope Waukee campus and, and our campus in Des Moines called Hope Elam across the street from Drake. We'll be doing VBS in the evenings. Blessed are our eyes to see what we get to see. So let me tell you a story about that. You've already heard it. You saw it in the, the video clip from the 1970s miniseries called Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm so disappointed that they haven't had a more modern version of that story. And so we had to use that one with, you know, super peaceful dude, Jesus with the blue piercing eyes. Like I said, pretty sure he didn't look like that, but, but he probably looked like a Middle Eastern Jewish kid. But it doesn't matter. It's not what he looks like, it's what he said. And this clip got that right, so it was worth sharing with you. And then you heard the Bible reading where the, the reader gets up and says, well, here's, here's the word of God. And here's this story. This is the story I want to tell you today. It's the the child Jesus who teaches the teachers in the temple. Let let me set the table for you. There's four parts to this story. The first part is Jesus getting lost. Although Jesus himself wasn't lost. It's just from the 
perspective of the parents, he was lost. So I want to tell this story from the perspective of Mary and Joseph. And even if you're a kid, so you're not old enough to be a parent, or you're an adult and you're not a parent, it doesn't matter. Because we can relate to how Mary and Joseph feel in the sense that they have a responsibility. They have a responsibility to take care of their 12-year-old boy, their son, and and to make sure that he's safe. And they go to this massive Jewish festival called the Passover. It's kind of like VBS only bigger. So all these faithful Jewish people in, in Jesus' day come together every year to celebrate the highest holy religious festival of the year, the Passover. And the reason they all come together in Jerusalem to do it is because that's where the temple is. They have synagogues in all the other towns like Nazareth where Jesus grew up and where he lived with his parents, Mary and Joseph. But they would come to Jerusalem every year to celebrate and to worship and to make their offerings before God at Passover and to remember the story about how God saved his people when they were living as slaves in Egypt and set them free into a new life in a promised land because of the Passover. So that's the setting. Jesus and his parents are making the trek to Jerusalem because in that temple, the temple's a big deal. And if you read through the Old Testament, you know this. The temple is where God resides, and that's repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. More specifically, he's in the Ark of the Covenant. And in that Ark, there's a special room that's built in the very most interior room of the whole temple called the Holy of Holies, where only, it's so holy, only one priest once a year is designated from one of the 12 tribes of Israel to go into that room to make atonement for the sins of the entire nation. Nobody else has access to that room. And so it goes, according to the decrees of the Old Testament, this is how you're to build the temple, and this is who gets access to what rooms. And so the, the, the higher you are in the religious hierarchy of, of Old Testament times, the closer you get to that holy of holies, just physically closer to it, but you can't go in unless you're that one priest from the one tribe. And then on the outside of the temple is the outer gates, and those are the public gates where even the Gentiles, meaning the people who aren't descendants of Abraham and Sarah, can come and they can worship too. So imagine that setting in the holy city of Jerusalem, and there are thousands, tens of thousands of people who have gathered together in this massive crowd. It's easy to lose a kid in a crowd like that. Every once in a while we lose a kid here at the church, but I'm happy to tell you that in almost 30 years of ministry, we haven't lost one for good yet. They haven't disappeared. So if you're going to lose a kid, church is a good place to do it. I still remember a a while ago when our kids were younger, uh, one of our kids, the one who happens to be the campus pastor up in Ames now, he had a tendency to purposely get lost here on Sunday mornings at church. And so uh, my wife and I would get home after Sunday morning worship, and, and we would get there, and we'd take inventory. We have three kids. And we'd look around the room in the the house, there's only two present. And I'd say, wasn't Danny with you? And she'd say, I thought he was with you. And you get that sinking feeling as a parent, even though, you know, Danny had a track record of doing this, still does. But he, he, you know, we, we didn't think that we'd lose him for good in the church, but you still feel weird about it. As a parent, you're like, ah, we have a responsibility to make sure he doesn't get lost like this and feel kind of embarrassed and bad that we both drove home with only our two favorite kids and left him behind. (laughs) Kidding, we love him equally. I hope he's gonna listen later to this sermon. We're gonna go ahead and record the 931, okay? So so he, uh, 
he would be here and then we would hightail it back and run into the church. And Danny, Danny, a lot of times he'd just be in the gym shooting hoops with his friends. But it was always a good feeling to find him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, and they traveled in a caravan and community. It wasn't just Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, let's jump in the family truckster and go to Wally World. It was them together with half of Nazareth, probably, traveling together because they're safer that way. We're better together. We're safer in community, and we still are today spiritually. You're safer spiritually if you don't do this as an individual pursuit. If you have somebody who's mature enough as a follower of Jesus and loves you enough to say, you're off on that. What you're saying there isn't biblical. It isn't accurate. It isn't true. It isn't right. Anyway, they're traveling this caravan. They get to Jerusalem. After the Passover festival, they're, they're heading back to Nazareth in this caravan of a community from Nazareth. And that's when Mary and Joseph realize we don't have Jesus. They had assumed he's probably with somebody else in the community. You know, it takes this village to raise our children, and so we're, we're fine. Even if he's not with us, we're sure he's with them. And then they discovered he wasn't with anybody. And they panicked, and they ran back, the Bible says, to Jerusalem. And three days later, by the way, that's significant. It's almost like Jesus is lost, and three days later, he's found. He's perfectly fine. He's alive. And where is he? He's teaching the elite of the religious teachers, the, 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 the people who have the most advanced religious theological degrees. Three days later, they finally discover Jesus in the temple, back half of that same verse, sitting amongst the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. <laughs> like the kids at VBS, and, um, I have a question, cowboy dude. Jesus is asking the questions, but it gets even better in the next verse. He's giving them answers. All who heard this 12-year-old boy were amazed at his understanding and his answers. I, I would have loved to have been there. I, I just would love to imagine the detail of that scene. So, you know, a little too confidently, overconfidently, maybe some of these religious teachers stood up and say, well, you know, this is God's law, and so in our narrow, self-righteous interpretation and application of that law, here's how this goes, and here's what this means. And 12-year-old Jesus, um, correction, that's actually not, that's not what I had in mind when I wrote that law, because he's God. He's God. His, apparently his voice hasn't changed, but he's God. He's human, but he's also God in the flesh. That had to be pretty awesome. So now he's found, and Mary and Joseph are excited, and we can assume this is probably where the story ends. It's just about Mary and Joseph felt bad because he was lost, and they found him, and, and, and he's a child prodigy, and isn't that wonderful? And it sort of is a, is a sort of a prelude for, how, uh, for Jesus' identity and who he's going to be. But let me tell you a secret. It shouldn't be a secret. During VBS throughout the week, every once in a while as I was doing my children's teaching, children's sermons for the kids, I'd say, come here, come here, everybody lean in. I've got a secret for you. And here's my secret for you right now that it shouldn't be a secret. Jesus is full of surprises. The story's not over. In fact, I'm going to take that further and say, if Jesus isn't still surprising you, you might not be following Jesus anymore. 
you might have developed such a comfortable version of Christianity that now you're calling the shots. Now you're Lord. Now you're telling Jesus, this is who you are. Why? Because I say so. I'm just more comfortable with that. This is who I want you to be. This is what I want you to be for. This is what I want you to be against. And it's just conveniently right in alignment with my worldview. This is what I want you to say. This is how I want you to say it. This is what I want you to emphasize. This is the stuff that I want you to make your main points. This is the stuff I don't want to hear too much about anymore because it's uncomfortable and it doesn't really fit in with my comfortable version of Christianity. If Jesus isn't surprising you anymore, you're probably not following him. And that's a problem because you're not going to be able to see what God wants you to see. And you're not going to be able to hear what God wants you to hear. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss the best part. I didn't say you're going to miss salvation. Salvation depends on God. But what you see this side of heaven depends on how strong your faith is. If you insist on having a lukewarm, milk toast, arm's distance relationship with God, you're going to miss the party. You're going to miss the best views. You're going to miss the best moments. You're going to miss the holy. You're going to miss the beautiful. You're going to miss the majestic. You're going to miss the mysterious. You're going to miss it all, the glorious the glimpses of heaven that God is providing all the time in this fallen, messed up, backwards world. Still, God is moving. They were amazed, the people were, when they understood and heard his answers. But then the plot takes a surprising twist. It turns because Jesus and Mary, his mother, have this quick dialogue. Mary says what any parent, any good parent would say in that point. You're grounded. She didn't say that. And Jesus wasn't being disobedient, by the way. Jesus is without sin. In fact, as the story develops, you'll see this much more clearly. But in this moment, Mary thinks, you know, for the first time in 12 years, I think Jesus really messed up. And I need to let him have it. Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. And from the world's perspective, that statement makes all the sense in the world. It's what parents need to say to their kids. One of the worst things parents can do for their kids is not discipline them, not teach them. Just say, my goal as a parent is just to be your best buddy. (sighs) Let them go find buddies and friends elsewhere. You be the parent. You be the dad. You be the mom like Mary's being here. She's doing it right, except that her son is God's son and the Messiah and the Savior of the world. So to all the 12-year-olds out there who are hearing me right now, I want to be abundantly clear on this point. You are not the Messiah, all right? You do not get to talk back to your mom like this. You do, you do not get to say this because Jesus' motive is actually for his mother. You're not the Messiah, which is why we're reading the story through the eyes of Mary. In fact, turn to the person next to you, whoever you are, and say, you are not the savior of the world. Go ahead and just say that. You are not the Messiah. That's a good thing to remember because it reminds us we need one. We need a savior and it isn't us. But if we develop comfortable Christianity, we can almost get to the point where we're like, I got this. I've arrived spiritually. I've got it all down. Do you know all the spiritual disciplines I practice? Do you know how many Greek verbs I can parse from the New Testament? 
Do you know how deeply aware I am of the intellectual details of prophecies being fulfilled in, in the history of God's people uh, through, from beginning of creation until today as it's biblically laid out? Do you know how I, I can put all that together? Great. That's really important. Study that stuff. Analyze it. Grow in your thinking about who God is. But here's where Jesus is going to challenge that. And any of us who forget, we aren't here to lead Jesus, we're here to follow him, including his very own mother. Why did you need to search, mom? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Everything in this story leads up to this point, and if you don't hear anything else I say, hear this verse. Why did you need to search? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? It's a good English translation, all the English translations, I looked at about 20 of them this week, they're all good, but this is one of those places where it wouldn't hurt us to go deep into the original Greek. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 49, understand this too, this is important. Luke writes with precision. Of the four Gospel writers, he's by far the most highly educated, he's a physician. He writes, and you can just, you can just, it's Shakespearean. And beyond that, even at certain levels, almost every line, every phrase, and sometimes every word that Luke is using is so purposely chosen. And the deeper you get into it, the more you start to realize the layers and you peel it back and you say, my goodness, this verse has connections to three or four different things, at least, and sometimes 20 or 30. Luke is going deep, early, and often. But don't let that intimidate you. Because... At the very deepest level of our faith, there is this simple truth that Jesus loves you all. The same thing we told the VBS kids all week. It doesn't get any deeper than that. Let me show you what I mean. Here's the Greek up here. Entois tu patros, the first four words, in the the father. Like, wait a minute, I thought you said Luke was precise. Why would he write something in the Greek where it almost looks like he forgot a word? In the what, the Father? And the way it's translated in most of our English translations is in the house of the Father. Or, or some other versions say in the things or the mission or the purpose of the Father. In the will of the Father. Because this first the, twice, is singular, and the second one, too, is plural in, the, in Koine Biblical Greek. And so the plural, the patros, the Father, I'm sorry, this is singular, two is singular, so the Father is singular, there's one God, the twice is plural. So there's a plural, the, the house, well there's just one house, there's this one temple. Don't you know I'd be in my Father's house? It's not that that's inaccurate, it just isn't complete. Luke, absolutely on purpose, left this dangling in the, in the fullness of the Father. Not just his house, but his purpose, his mission, his love, his mercy, his grace, his direction, his will. In everything that the Father is, Jesus is saying to his mother, I am in it because I am God. I am in the will and the presence and the person of God because it's who I am. This is my identity, Mom. In the house, the things of the Father, 
of my father, of mine, that's the way Greek is written, it's necessary, day, we'll get back to that word in a moment, hainai me, to be for me, put it together in English, literally the way we would read it, in the, the, of my father, it's necessary for me to be here. You know that, mom. You know that because when I was born, shepherds showed up unannounced and worshiped me. And then sometime later, magi came from the east and they bowed down and they worshiped me. You know I'm not just another kid. You know I'm something else. You know this and I wanna remind you of my identity, mom, because I love you. And I did not come just to be your son. I came to invite you to follow me. And I want, Joseph, I want you to do it too. My dad, my my adoptive father, I, I, I want everybody in the temple to do it. I want the whole world to hear this invitation. It's necessary day. It is a key repeated, almost a code word in Luke's gospel. It's a word that's kind of uppity in the original Greek, not used a whole lot, not common. And so when Luke uses it, it's going to just kind of jump off the page. And then those who are reading it in the original Greek in that culture once upon a time are saying, whoa, he just used that word? For it is necessary? Day? And he uses it several more times. It is necessary, Jesus says, towards the end of the story in Luke's gospel, chapter 22 and chapter 24, it is necessary for me to be crucified. It is necessary for me to be the sacrificial lamb of God. It is necessary for me to go to the cross, because if I don't do it, you don't have any hope. Mom, dad, world, church, you don't have any hope unless I do what I was sent into the world to do. I'm right where I'm supposed to be, Mom. I'm here with my Father, because I am the Father, the Heavenly Father in human form. I am Jesus. I am the Savior of the world. I am the anointed, chosen one of God. I am God's Son. I am here. It's necessary for me to be here. It's necessary for me to not come up to you and say, well, what version of comfortable religion would you like to have? And I'll just come over here and bless it. Because I love you, I'm not going to accept that, Jesus says. Because I love you, I'm going to tell you. Stop cheating at work. Stop cutting corners just to make extra money. You might be making more money, but it's killing your soul. End it now. Stop lying to people. Stop stabbing people in the back. That affair you're having or want to have outside your marriage, stop it. Stop flirting with that person at work. Stop it. I'm telling you, I'm not going to come over and bless it. I'm not going to come over and tell you what you're doing is great. Just keep doing that. I'm calling you to follow me. I have, with all due respect, Jesus says, I have zero interest in following you, Mike Householder. I have zero interest in following you, anybody who's hearing my voice, because I love you. I made you for more. Stop talking about, stop sounding like the rest of the world dividing people up. Remember I said, blessed are the peacemakers. When's the last time you tried to do that and be that person? Stop it. Turn around and follow me. It's necessary that I tell you that, Jesus says. Because if I don't, you're not going to see it. You're not going to hear it. You're going to miss out on the whole point for which you have been created. And it isn't just to get more from this world and to go after people. 
and to divide the world up more and more and to play your part in that, to sound just like the rest of the world and try to conform your faith into it. But to be the fish that swims upstream in a downstream world, to be the one who cuts against the grain because you trust Jesus and you surrender your whole life to him and no more with this lukewarm faith, this sort of, well, you know, Christianity has got some upsides. That eternal life thing is a nice bonus. You know, what about the life right here and right now? The view, what your eyes aren't seeing, what your ears aren't hearing, because you aren't surrendered to Jesus Christ. Well, that conversation leads to some confusion. But here's another big surprise. Here's what I mean by if Jesus isn't surprising you. Here's what I mean biblically. You might not be following Jesus. Do yourself a favor sometime and go home and read the gospel. Start anywhere in any of the four gospels. But read it this way. Read it as if you're reading it for the first time and ask yourself, is Jesus doing predictable things in this story? Is he saying what the world would expect him to say? Is he doing what the world would expect him to do? Or is he, in almost every single story in the Gospels, surprising everybody? Going a different way than the way they would expect. What does that tell you about what Christianity is supposed to look like? It's supposed to be adventurous. It's supposed to be exciting. It's supposed to not fit in and conform with the rest of the world. It's supposed to be glorious. Adventurous, beautiful. It's necessary for me to tell you that, Jesus says. Because if I don't, you might miss it. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And where Jesus is for you today and for me is, come follow me. I am not here to follow you. You come follow me so I can give you life. That leads to the fourth and final part of this story, which is faith. You say, well, that statement there in Luke 2.50 looks like the opposite of faith. Surprise, it's total faith. Mary and Joseph didn't understand what he meant. But see, here's the, here's the lie that the devil tells us. That the deepest Christians are the ones who've got it all figured out in their head. And until you get it all figured out in your head, you really can't have a, a strong, mature faith. It's a lie. They didn't understand what he meant. You're going to tell Mary she didn't have faith? Really? <laughs> when you say that to her, I want to step back so that when the lightning bolt hits you, it doesn't like, like bounce right off of me. Mary was chosen to be the mother of God because of her faith. It also reminds us, and what a wonderful reminder this is, that sometimes, sometimes, there are going to be places along the way in life when you're up against the trials and the tribulations or when you look at the totality of the, the condition of this world. Maybe it's just me, but this is how I feel lately. I'm finding it very difficult to put hardly any hope in the world's ability to solve the world's problems. And it seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Like more things just continue to seem to break and fall apart and crumble. And then I listen to the bickering and the fights and the people trying to fix it, but they're not really trying to fix it. They're just trying to use the situation to get more people to follow them. I don't know about you, but I don't have a ton of hope in that. 
for fixing everything that's wrong and, and is broken. So I turn to Jesus, even if I don't understand it, even if I don't always know what needs to happen. They didn't understand what he meant, but he followed him. And then the next verse says this, Mary, his mother, stored all these things in her heart. She kept these things close. Notice it didn't say Mary stored all these things in her head. Well, I'm gonna remember that this happened. And if I'm ever doing a Bible quiz on what happened that day in the temple when Jesus was 12 years old, I'll get 100%. So I'm the deepest Christian because I know the most stuff in my head. It's not what the Bible says. It says she put it here in her heart. In other words, the experience of following Jesus, the experience of God. Does that describe your faith? Or is it all up here? Surrender means you surrender your relationships. You surrender your career. You surrender your life. You surrender your marriage. You surrender your kids. You surrender your friendships. You surrender it all. You surrender all of the ordinary, day-to-day things. And you say, God, I want to know you well enough in my heart to know this is what you want me to do. This is what you want me to say. This is what you want me to not say. This is how you want me to treat my enemies. This is how you want me to treat my friends. And instead of just trying to sound like the rest of the world and say, yeah, but Jesus loves me, I'm going to say, because Jesus loves me, I'm going to go his way. Ah, surrender. That's walking with God in your heart, not just your head. And I'm telling you, those are the deepest Christians in our midst. They're not necessarily the ones who've got it all figured out up here. They're the ones who've got it figured out here. They know that they know there is a God and this God loves them. And they're all in. They're all in with Jesus. They're following him every step of the way. Imperfectly, yes, because we're human. We're going to mess up. We're going to fail. Let me put it another way. Do you just carry faith in your head? or even a little glimpse of it in your heart? Or does faith carry you? Do you allow faith to be the thing that defines you? You're following Jesus to be the thing that informs all of your decisions. The way you're gonna live, the way you're gonna, the the way you're gonna relate to people, the way you're gonna understand suffering, the way you're gonna understand joys, mountaintops and valleys and everything in between. Do you just carry faith or does faith carry you? Does it envelop you? Is it that all-consuming? Have you surrendered everything? Because when you do, and the view, blessed will will, will be your eyes to see what you'll get to see and your ears to hear what you'll get to hear. A long time ago, when I was, I guess I was mid-20s, I was graduating from the seminary, the graduate school, theological graduate school called Luther Seminary. And it was April. And back then, I don't think they're this strict anymore, but back then there was this very crazy strict process where you would fill out a form as every Lutheran, Lutheran seminarian would, every Lutheran seminary across the country. And the Lutheran church did it this way. It said, all of our incoming pastors fill out a form and tell us a bunch of things, but one of the questions, the big one, the one we all talked about was, 
What region of the country did you put in for? Because, I mean, that's, that's where you're going to live. It's kind of a big thing. But all you could do was request it. There was no guarantee you'd get it. When my wife and I met in Chicago, in the city, grow, grew up there, went to high school there, Chicago Public High School, and so we're like, man, urban ministries in, in our hearts. Put us in the inner city of the inner city. Put us in places nobody else would want to go. We know the city, we understand it, so I wrote down one region. There's 65 different regions or synods in the Lutheran Church. I only put one on my application, Metro Chicago. Because that's what we knew. That's all we really knew. It's what we understood, where our hearts were, it's where our passion was. I was sure that's where the mission was. Because I understood, I understood the nature of it. I knew what it was like to go to high school there. I, I, I knew the, the racial tensions. I understood the whole thing. Let's go. God, you gotta send me there. I mean, that just makes total sense. Plus, hardly anybody else wants to go. Send me. So the day came and we all got our assignments. And Jesus surprised us. <laughs> Iowa. <laughs> Let me be really clear in this. Iowa's the most beautiful place ever. At the time, I didn't believe that. <laughs> I didn't know that. I had driven through once for a few hours, and that was my entire experience with the state of Iowa, firsthand. Then there was all the stuff people tell you Iowa is, and I believed it all. Not all of it's flattering. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. <laughs> Not exactly the tourist destination of the world, right? But it's the best place on earth to live. I just didn't know that. And so my wife and I were shook. We seriously considered applying for uh, an exception, which meant you basically put on the sidelines for a year while they process it and you'll go get another day job. But the bishop, Paul Werger from Iowa, called me up and he says, hey, I've got a church for you. It just keeps getting worse. <laughs> I'm like, well, there's some bigger type-ish cities in Iowa. Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, Davenport, you know, Omaha Council Bluffs area. Maybe, you know, there, like, please? I'm gonna send you to Huxley, Iowa. I looked it up, population 1,982 at the time. And I said, oh, wow. And then the bishop said, oh, but not in town. There's another Lutheran church in town. You're gonna be out in the suburbs. He didn't call it the suburbs, but you're gonna be out in the rural agricultural farm setting where there's a Lutheran church right off of I-35 on Highway 210. That's where I'm sending you. I don't, I don't know that life. I don't know the first thing about farming. I don't know, I, I, I can't do ministry with people I don't understand. He said, just, because he knew, just go. Just go and meet with them, and then you can decide. So Sally and I went down, the call committee sat down with them. Halfway through the meeting, I was like, thank you, God. These people are salt of the earth. And I would be honored and privileged if they would call me to come and be their pastor. I'd be able to do ministry with these people and they could teach me so much about, and they did, about what it means to be a pastor. It's like, please, I hope I don't mess up this interview. So they called and I showed up. 
And I'm here to tell you today, Jesus really surprised us. And that was 32 years ago. What would I have missed if I had put in for that exception? If I had tried to say, Jesus, this is what you want, right? This is what I'm supposed to be and this is what I'm supposed to do. What, what would I have missed? I would have missed the view at VBS this week and this coming week. I would have missed every single one of you. And that price is way too high. I would have missed the relationships with you. I would have missed being your pastor. I would have missed watching God do whatever this is at Lutheran Church of Hope, where we didn't build it so people would come. People came, we're like, oh, crud, we gotta build it. I would have missed it all. I would have missed the whole thing. Look, what are you missing? What are you missing? Because you're trying to control God. Because you're trying to say, God, I'm over here. Come and bless it. Even though I know you don't really necessarily like the stuff I'm doing over here. And it's really all about me. Jesus says, watch what happens when you surrender all that. When I just set you free. When I just lead you to a way better place and a way better view. See how very much your father loves you? For he calls you his child. And that is who you are, it's who we are. You're a child of God, but you're gonna miss it if you don't follow him. You're gonna miss the love, you're gonna miss the connection, you're gonna miss the faith. That doesn't mean you have to understand everything, it just means I'm on the adventure with you, Jesus. You alone are worthy of my trust. In contrast to all the other things that compete for my trust that really aren't worthy. So I'm gonna come and follow, I'm gonna to try to get my house to follow too and my friends to follow too and my coworkers to follow too because I want them to see what I get to see. Get to see the little boy at the end of VBS on Friday at our Friday, I wanna to give too much away for those of you who are coming this week, but in one of the skits, Jesus shows up at the end. And when he came in, there was this quiet part and this little boy stood up, not in this room, it's down in the preschool room. The gym's packed with hundreds of little kids, four-year-olds and kindergartners. And this one kindergarten boy stands up when Jesus comes in and says, I love you, Jesus! The view he gets, what he gets to see, and what you could see too when you realize who you are. You are a child of God. And God's got some things for you to see that you might be missing. Stand up together, let's sing this song of praise.